episode 384 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express here today do not reflect those of our colleagues, our firms, our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our pets. Nobody agrees with us, and we may not even agree with what we said here three weeks from today. I uh, We've got an interview today for the first time in a while with two executives from the security startup Randori, David, or better known as Moose Walpoff, and Dan McConnell. We'll be talking about their, their newsmaking with an exploit and how they handled it, uh, which turned out to be pretty controversial and I think uh, raises some issues that are worth exploring. But first, the news roundup with Dmitry Alparovich, who's the co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator, Paul Rosenswag, the founder of Red Branch Consulting, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS. Today's host and chief provocateur, let's jump right into the, the news. Paul, everybody is suddenly saying a Telling people about your breaches when it involves uh, personal data is no longer enough. If you're an important part of our infrastructure, you're going to have to tell the government every time you get a, a breach, no matter what kind of information is compromised. And the latest seems to be uh, banking regulators who've told banks that they have to uh, report major cyber incidents pretty quickly. And it, it turned out to be a controversial reg, and the regulators made a few changes to it. Yeah, you're right, Stuart. All of a sudden, we have gone from data breach notification to basically incident notification in, uh, in what in government terms, is the speed of light. The first, of course, was the TSA response to the Colonial Pipeline hack and ran ransomware incident earlier. And now the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, along with the Federal Reserve, has imposed incident reporting notification requirements on most of the major banks. They, if you look at the size and scope of it, I saw one estimate that this is going to cover about 90% of the American banking. Nobody's quite sure about that. The rule is going to require you to report incidents within 36 hours. And that's pretty key. If I talk to people like Dimitri, they probably would tell us that 36 is, is a little short. Maybe 72 is a better time frame to get a, a scope of, of the incident. May, I don't know. Maybe Dimitri has a different view, but, but certainly most of the people I talk to say 36 hours is barely time to to realize that you, you've got a problem, much less have a good sense of it. But what was really interesting, and you intimated this in terms of your discussion of the controversy, is that they changed in the last iteration the trigger. It used to be that it was 36 hours from whenever you had a good faith belief that there was a breach, which was the way it was originally drafted, which would pretty much trigger a reporting requirement 36 hours after the first credible report from any one of your, you know, any one of your subsidiaries or subordinates that had the least bit of real data behind it, they changed that, and so it's now 36 hours after a determination is made by the bank that a reportable breach has occurred. So that leaves, in the end, though the 36 hours is quick from one perspective, it leaves in the end the start of the 36-hour trigger completely at the discretion of the bank. And I predict that the greatest number of casualties from this ruling 
will be the dead in the boardrooms at the knife fight between the CISO and the general counsel over who has determination <laughs> authority uh, yeah, yeah. to make those reports. Because if I'm a CISO with worth my salt, I'm going to say, no, I make that determination because that's a technical thing and I'm the one who knows. And yeah, I'll be cautious. Uh, and if I'm the general counsel, I'll say, the hell you will. Uh, you are not doing any notification of any legally significant thing without my sign off. And it's going to be a really interesting uh, evolution over the next year or two as uh, COOs and boards even get involved in figuring out internal processes for determination. Yeah, I kind of imagine, and I, I, I want to hear from Dimitri, but I kind of imagine people standing around the boardroom, just like in the medical dramas, looking at their watch and say, okay, I'm going to call it. Time of determination is 207. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Paul, in my experience dealing with breach uh, investigations, the lawyers always, always win. It's not even close. The CISO is never going to try to yeah. pick a fight with a general counsel. That's not smart for the advancement of their career. So it is always going to be decided by a general counsel. And you're absolutely right. I mean, with this change of the trigger, you can drive a truck through this notification. You may say that, well, once the IR is complete and we have the report and we've reviewed the report and we've accepted all the changes to the report, that's when we decide that it's reportable and we'll go ahead and do it, which may be months after the original breach. I think that's right. I guess in, in some ways, though, the change actually raises a much more interesting and broader question, which is what is the point of the notification? If you think that the reason we ask for these prompt notifications is because the U.S. government will be able to you know, ride into the rescue in real time, then the delay, then the change in the trigger is a bad idea. But I don't think that that's, that's realistic. Not, that's not I the goal. That, I mean, this really, the, the urgency of this really came after solar winds when Congress realized that if it weren't for Kevin Mandian's, Mandia's uh, voluntary notification that fire had been breached, we, we would not know about that, uh, that major incident, perhaps for months, maybe years. So uh, there's an appreciation that we need to get reporting on these incidents so that we can scope out how big the problem is, so that we can potentially, we, I say the U.S. government, can other victims that may not be even aware if this is a major campaign is going on. It's not really about that one individual institution that's reporting it. It's about using their information that they collect to get a broader strategic intelligence on what is going on and what the adversaries are trying to achieve. So I'm in broad support of those types of breach notification requirements. Obviously, there's a bill that is trying to get past Congress right now that we've talked many times on the show. But I think one of the big outcomes from this story and, and many others we've covered is that regulation of the industry is coming. It's going to be broad. It's going to be specific to individual sectors. So we already have pipeline regulations after Colonial. We, we have some efforts on, on the White House on the water, with the water sector and electric sector. There's going to be a lot more coming um, in the coming months. Yeah. Defense contractors. Yep. Defense contractors. Yeah. yeah. So, so a question for you then, Dimitri. I, I agree with you that that's the broader goal. What would be the right optimal time frame then from your perspective? So I, I actually you don't know, have a problem with a short time frame as long as it's a collaborative reporting structure where you can give the government a heads up that, hey, we know something. We, we don't yet have a grasp of what this is. As we learn more, we'll share more. With, and there's appreciation on the part of the government that that's just how these things unfold. And then there's not a demand for everything to be accurate, everything to be complete on that initial reporting. So as long as there's flexibility, I know it's hard to get flexibility with the government, but I wouldn't have a problem with it. 
So that's, you know, that's... So, that's, so Stuart, here's... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to give you a bonus problem for the lawyers in the banking industry, which is if the national breach notification law does get added to the NDAA, which it seems likely it will, I assume that the statute will override the more permissive notification of the regulation, but I don't know I'm for not sure. sure. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think well, that's... No, I, yes, but... It, but what, whichever's added, tougher, it, you'll have to comply with. I think right. that's probably yeah, and, and the, right. And the law is going to be a reasonable, a reasonably believes, sure. more like the good faith standard that was removed from the regulation. So the protection that the bankers got from the regulation in last week may last only until the end Although of the year. Or until their lobbyists get up where, to the hill. It may be a strategic change where they're now, now going to lobby Congress to have the same uh, standard in the legislation. Yeah, that's that. I would not be surprised. To, I, I think that probably the lawyers are a little more antsy about this than they need to be. It is true that you only got one bite at this apple when you were disclosing to the public about breaches of private data. And whatever you said had damn well better be right, because you'll be you'd be hung if you later went in and said, oh, actually, it was twice as many or 10 times as many records. And we saw people get hurt that way. Hopefully, regulators will be a little more understanding if you come in and say, you know, we've, we're still looking at this and it looks a lot bigger than we first thought. Because the purpose of this is to alert them, not to, to tell everybody exactly what has happened to their data. Well, and the legislation mandates today are the requirement is to, to report to CISA. The FBI is trying to get in and, and make sure the reporting is to them. But regardless of where it ends up, I have to say, you know, working with both organizations over many years, they are very, very good at working with victims, not trying to re-victimize them. They're not regulators. So I think that that can work very well where they're generally interested in helping. And one of the things that the FBI has told me many times on the ransomware issue in particular, the pitch that they make to victims is, hey, if you come to us early on and you end up deciding to pay ransom, well, we may have resources to get that ransom back for you, as we've done with Colonial, as they've just now done with JPS. So that's a pretty attractive offer, by the way. The government is going to get your ransom back. Get uh, your money back, yes. Exactly. <laughs> so so uh, I, I don't know why more people wouldn't take them up on it. All right. So let's talk about an indictment uh, of a couple of Iranian nationals over what I would say was a, a broad and more or less hapless campaign of disinformation and election interference, but they did it, succeed in getting indicted for it. There's some talk on the right that this shows that Chris Krebs was wrong when he said this was a uh, a secure election. I don't really buy that. Dimitri, no. what actually happened here? And do you have the same yeah. low opinion of the Iranian hackers that I do? I don't. But let me just address the first thing. So first of all, there's some good details in this indictment. But the broad story we've known about, because back in October, when the Proud Boys emails had gone out, the government actually within hours came out. That was the Trump administration. We detected this. We're going to attribute this to Iran. I think the fastest attribution that they've ever done, perhaps by months, of any incident in cyberspace that they've ever attributed. What we didn't know is how thorough the campaign was. We knew that they were sending out these emails. There was a fake video. There was an intimidation video that they were pushing out as well. But we didn't realize at the time that they were also hacking state registration websites to get the databases, although it makes sense because people were wondering how did they get the list of people um, that they were going to, the list of voters that they were going to send these emails to. By the way, the registration database says, while they're not super public, anyone can realistically get them. I think you pay a fee of 10 bucks or something. 
in any state and they'll send you a CD of everyone's voting information. So in almost every single state. So, so getting that information is not hard for anyone, including uh, the Iranians. So I wouldn't totally overly focus on, on the fact, oh my God, they hacked this database. But the more interesting piece of the intrusion was actually their attempts to hack a regional or local newspaper publisher, Lee Enterprises, that has a lot of newspapers in different um, regions of the country. And uh, they had hacked them in September of 2020. And then when they sent out their Proud Boys emails, they tried to use the stolen credentials that they had gotten from that early hack to get back into that company and presumably alter the content in some of those newspapers accessing their content uh, production system to put out some fake content, uh, at least online, in these newspapers, which would have been probably more impactful than this crude email campaign. So that was actually really smart. Unfortunately for them, what they didn't know is that the FBI had already notified Lee Enterprises of the hack earlier, and they mitigated the access and presumably reset all the credentials. So their attempts to get back into that network were ultimately unsuccessful. But it does show you that the Iranians, I think, are actually getting better and smarter about thinking through these issues. It's not just Russia that's trying to do interference operations. Right. The Iranians are doing it too. And these two individuals are working for a company called, which has now been renamed, but they provide services to the Iranian government, including their Guardian Council, which is the leading government organ in, in Iran. So, you know, just goes to show you that more and more countries are going to be doing this. That's for sure. And and look, Iran, that is not, it's a very big country with a lot of smart people in it who probably have a little more time on their hands than they should. So yeah, I, you're right. Eventually they'll get good at this. They still haven't quite, or at least not good enough to beat us. They, uh, they're getting more creative. Uh, but that, you have to give them credit. Yeah, back. exactly. But and frankly, we should come down on them. I'm not sure this is coming down on them to mail them an indictment in a jurisdiction where we have no sway whatsoever may not impress them particularly but frankly it does look as though if we could if we could take these two players off the board the Iranian capability would be a lot less all right I wanted to cover this just because I thought it was interesting this mm -hmm. Hick vision has filed comments at the FCC saying I know we were mentioned in a statute I know you've been given authority to ban electronic uh, products, including uh, surveillance videos. But you can't ban us because of the complexity in which, in the way that the various lists were assembled in two or three separate pieces of legislation. Uh, and this shows the difficulty of legislating kind of seriatim through the National Defense Authorization Act. They they are claiming, ha ha, you missed us. You mentioned us once and you set, gave all this authority to the FCC Congress, but you failed to actually do it right. And so the FCC has no authority to ban us. You know, the, it, I thought it was plausible legally, but it seems to me that's just creating an opportunity for Somebody in Congress, maybe even now with the, with the NDAA almost passed, to go in and say, look at this brief. These guys say we missed them. Let's make sure we didn't. And to change the law again, uh, uh, that I think is going to be the inevitable result of this uh, effort to uh, save Hick Vision from being banned by the FCC. I, I guess you have to give them points for trying, but... I have to say, even though I'm not an FCC lawyer or any type of lawyer, you know, I do wonder, since FCC has such broad licensing authority, every electronics device you have in your house has an FCC license associated with it. Couldn't they just withdraw the licenses and make sure that you can't sell your devices at all? 
So the, uh, Hickvision saw that coming and says, uh, that's never been used that way and you can't do it, uh, which may not be the most persuasive uh, argument they have. Yeah, I have Hickvision on my phone. Do you? Because it's the only it's the only video surveillance thing that's available for sale in Costa Rica. Ha! So. All right. Well, you, so, you, uh, you may not be able to bring it back into the country. Look out. <laughs> Oh no! I got it. I, well, I better be able to bring it back into the country. I, I monitor my video in Costa Rica using it. Okay. Okay. No. All right. Yeah, you're right. Okay. So Rowhammer, this is the technique for hacking essentially hardware, memory chips, and it's been kicking around as kind of this cute academic parlor trick for a while. I, but the latest announcement suggests that all of the minimization and uh, mitigation techniques that the industry has put in place can be pretty easily defeated. And I'm wondering, Dimitri, do you think we're at getting to the point where hacking hardware using Rowhammer is going to start to be a real thing? Well, I, I actually don't think that it was a parlor trick. It, it was a ser very serious exploit that was released back in 2014 now. And really ingenious because it took advantage not of any software bugs, not of any logic bugs, actual physical processes that happen on these chips as you're trying to compress more and more data or more and more transistors onto these chips to make them more powerful. What happens is that you can't avoid basic physics. You can't avoid energy spillover when particular transistors or particular memory cells get overheated. So the technique was essentially brilliant in its simplicity that you can, if you hammer a particular memory location on a DRAM chip enough times and think millions of times per second, you can actually flip the bits in the neighboring chips, the physically neighboring chips, Right, because the, the voltage sort of sort of strays over there, exactly. and it's just so, enough to to turn over. them from a zero to a one or a one to a zero. That's right. Um, now, the challenge with their technique at the time was it didn't work on all the chips. You know, they tried it on like forty-two different types of chips. It only worked on thirteen of them. And the chip makers, the memory makers, started implementing some techniques to mitigate it. But that original technique was basically accessing a uniform pattern and trying to to hammer um, these particular cells. And what this new research shows is that if you randomize a pattern, then it can actually work on all DIMM chips that, that these folks have tested it on, over 40 different types of chips. So it's a technique that's now much more applicable. Now, it doesn't give you remote exploitation. It requires you to be already on a machine, but think of many scenarios, particularly cloud systems and many others, where you already have some sort of local access to a system, and now you're trying to become uh, a root user or God, use, uh, God mode user on that system, that is the perfect technique for it. And the broader theme here that people should be aware of is that there is no way to build a perfect secure, perfectly secure system. And I still see so many people in government and other policy circles talking about how we need you know, more secure code is going to solve our problems. We certainly need more secure code, but the reality is code is always going to be insecure, and particularly when you combine hardware and software and the limitations of physics that you get when you start compressing things too much um, on these chips, there is just going to be a whole slew of vulnerabilities that we're going to be discovering over the coming decades. We've already seen some of the um, spectrum meltdown vulnerabilities in the CPUs that some of your audience members may remember. There's going to be way, way more of them as these systems are getting only more complex with time. So the idea that we're going to live in a world without exploits is just not realistic. So where does that leave us if we don't like the insecurity we face today? Does it mean we have to find more ways to punish people that, that use these techniques? 
Yeah, I think deterrence is critical, but also it means that security is not going to be dependent on keeping someone out, right? The, the best security right. organizations realize that someone is going to get in. It may be an insider. It may be a hardware hack. It may be, you know, lots of different types of vulnerabilities, known and unknown, that they may be using to get in or social engineering someone. But the reality is they're going to get in, but it doesn't mean that they can accomplish the objectives if you're on your toes, if you're hunting for them, if you're able to respond quickly. That's where most of the efforts in good organizations really are at stopping attacks. So that's interesting. You sound a lot like the guys from Randori who we're going to be talking to after this, because essentially what they did was they, they used a zero day for a long, long time in order to get into people's systems and then try to move laterally. And their argument is uh, we didn't have to disclose that because using that to get access is just what it takes to have a realistic pen test in 2021. Yeah, so, and I would say well, this, I mean, the whole argument about vulnerability disclosure, and we went through this in the V process with the White House trying to figure out a right policy of disclosing vulnerabilities that the intelligence community knows about. The fundamental problem with that process and, and with the vulnerability disclosure debate is this idea that it's based on, which is false, that if you close down one vulnerability, you substantially improve security of the oral system. And that's just not true because there's a million other vulnerabilities that exist that you don't even know about. And plugging in one, plugging in a hundred is actually not meaningfully changing the security of the system and not making us all substantially safer. Yeah, I know. I, it, it's increasingly, it feels like exploits are nuggets that you do get out of the ore that you you process, but there's a lot of ore and getting to the nugget takes a lot of work and saying, once you've gotten to the nugget, you need to give it back to you know, put it back in the mine is, uh, you know, not really particularly productive anyway. Okay. So here's something that I wanted to talk to Paul about, because I think it's a problem we're seeing more and more now, uh, a legal problem. And that is the question of what to do with data about groups or activities that social media has swept in and banned and deplatformed. And there's a whole bunch of data about those people. They've been deplatformed for good reasons or bad, but certainly the platform thought they were doing bad things. And then it looks like the platform is throwing the data away so that if law enforcement or civil society wants to get at it, they're out of luck. Well, it's a fascinating problem, and there's so many different pieces to it. The most recent instantiation of this was a, a group called the New Mexico Civil Guard, which was a private civil militia that may or may not have been connected to some violence last year in Albuquerque, where some protesters were wanting to pull down the statue of a Spanish conquistador, and the Civil Guard was defending the heritage of the Spanish or something of that nature. Facebook wound up banning them and then wound up deleting the data that they had, or so they say. So here are some questions that come from that one case, all of which you know, are difficult to answer. First, do federal privacy rights apply to uh, banned or, dele uh, or deleted accounts? I mean, say I delete my account tomorrow from Facebook just because I'm tired of Facebook. Do I still have privacy rights in that at all? Uh, second, what's the mechanism for law enforcement to be able to ask Facebook to retain the data? Facebook says that in this instance, New Mexico didn't ask, so they didn't have to retain it. You know, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but whether or not, but however it is, there ought to be some sort of mechanism. What is it? Third, 
Uh, Facebook says the data is all gone. But in this case, and this is the part that really puzzles me in this case, they won't provide a sworn affidavit that it's gone. Or that it can't be recovered. Like it, yes. Uh, that, that could be, or uh, it could be recovered. And that seems to me, if what they're saying is true, would, you know, just kind of make this particular go away completely. And then fourth and finally, let's say that we think that Facebook ought to be keeping this data. Does that mean that we're now building a system in which Facebook keeps all of the data all the time for forever on everybody, banned or unbanned, because of the possibility that someday Stuart Baker might be subject to a criminal investigation as well? Yeah, I, that's right. So they uh, deplatform I, yeah. you, and then you, the added punishment is they keep your data around to give to the government whenever they p- feel like it. it. It it strikes me that the following are the ways I would think about this. First, you know, the Historic Communications Act probably doesn't apply because it was written in 1980, frickin' four, and last updated in 1990-whatever. And so they, they had no idea what they were talking about. So we need the... So we're mostly talking about contract. Facebook is entitled, therefore, to do whatever it wants or whatever that is within its contracts, provided it hasn't gotten a subpoena yet. But it really ought to be very forward-leaning in letting law enforcement, you know, ask for retention data. And if it does... And then... But if they don't get it, Get rid of it. That's my kind of way to square this, sir. When what they were mostly deplatforming were terrorist groups that were trying to recruit in the United States or carry out attacks in the United States, I was kind of shocked that they would take down an entire terrorist Twitter or Facebook network and then throw the data away. And unless the U.S. figured out that that had happened and decided it wanted to investigate, that data would be gone. So that strikes me as not particularly pro-social. Now that what they're doing is taking down people they just don't like ideologically, I'm a little more uncomfortable with the idea of saying, well, they they get to decide whether they're going to keep it because they hate you or throw it away because they feel sorry for you because you're Antifa and, you know, that they, they, they resonate to your frequency. There's only two colorable rules that, that I would accept. Either Anybody they take down is per se, they've got to retain it because they've made a judgment that it's dangerous, Mm -hmm. in which case they keep it all, or it's by their contract and they keep whatever, they don't have to keep any of it unless law enforcement affirmatively requests it. So there is- I don't want them to have any discretion. Yeah, there is is already a case kicking around in which one of the magistrate judges made a, a really very surprising, but, you know, also surprisingly coherent argument that said the Stored Communications Act protects the privacy of communications that you have stored with a vendor. But if they've taken you down and kicked you off, you're not storing that anymore. They are, and they can be asked to turn it over without any restriction whatsoever. And this is the Gambia. This is a human rights case. They're asking for a bunch of uh, data for people who were deplatformed. Uh, so w- this issue is going to kick around. I'm not completely convinced that the Gambia decision is going to stand up uh, when it gets to the district court or the court of appeal. But it's pretty clear that this debate is not going to go away. I think that's right. Okay. Cell phone data. This is related in some sense. It, it has to do with what's the government's right to get at private data. But in this case, the government was buying location data that had been generated for advertisers to tell them where you are on your phone. Uh, and advertisers are more or less entitled to know everything about you unless you've taken extraordinary measures to prevent that. And 
once the advertising companies know that, they can chop it up and sell it to whoever they please, including the U.S. government. And now there's a bit of a manufactured scandal, I guess I would call it, in which the Wall Street Journal and Ron Wyden are trying to say, that's wrong. It isn't illegal. I think everybody agrees with that. I know, Paul, you agree with me that it's not illegal for this advertising location data to be sold. The question is, should it be? Well, it's definitely not illegal. And, you know, so we're coming down to a social policy question here. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me fundamentally idiotic to say that the federal government may not purchase on the open market the same products that Walmart can purchase. Right. Uh, for, for, I mean, yeah, it's not like the government's subpoenaing it or using its authority. It's acting as a consumer like anybody else. And for privacy advocates to contend that the government as a consumer should be in a different position from any other commercial purchaser for value is just senseless. I mean, it kind of reminds me of back before 9-11, Stuart, you were always outraged by this, and I was, that the FBI couldn't, like, use uh, Westlaw or, or Lexus Google. searches. They, could, they, or, they, couldn't do, they couldn't print out their Google searches because they were not right. allowed to, to uh, about people, because they were not allowed to maintain a file on individuals without create a Create a new record. Yes. It was the most idiotic thing in the world. Now, you know, that's different than if the company makes a decision for prudential reasons that it doesn't want to sell to the government, you know, like, like Google did with Maven. Yep. You know, I think that that's bad business decision, but that's fine for Google to do if it wants to or, or not. If it doesn't want to, that's that's. And so the adware people could not sell to the government if they choose not to or if there's reputational risk. But for Ron Wyden to suggest that the U.S. government is doing something inappropriate by doing the exact same data massaging and big data aggregation and correlation that, you know, Target and Amazon do every day is, but Paul, you know, why, why don't we just put a stick in our eye and, 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 and <laughs> but, grind it but out? Paul, let me ask you this. Dimitri. So two, two questions. One, there are certain prohibitions on government aggregation of certain data. You know, one thing I can think of is background checks on gun sales that they can't store for more than 90 days or something like this, right? So regardless of where they get it, they're not prohibited from doing so. I don't know if there's any prohibition on location data like this. But you know, where does it stop? Uh, are they allowed to go on underground hacking forums and buy up stolen data on Americans too? Like, where, where would you draw the line? I, I guess I would draw the line. I'd start at legality. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm going to assume for purposes of discussion that the uh, location data that, that was the subject of the why uh, the Wall Street Journal article was collected legally under terms of, you know, privacy click-throughs that nobody reads. And, you know, we don't like it, but that's the system we've got, right? And I'm going to assume that the underground hackers are probably selling stuff that they stole. Um, so so I, that would be my first one, you know, for sure. And, you know, if we want to have a broad remit against location data generally, we can do that too. You know, we, I mean, but that would be, you know, there, there goes my Uber service out the door. Yeah, uh, I, I mean... All right, well, so, so let me see if I can get consensus on one thing, because I do think this is significant. There's all this data about location of Americans floating around. I, should there be a restriction on selling it to China or Russia or to Chinese companies? 
I think there should be a restriction on selling it, period. I don't like my location data being sold without my, my permission. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's, I want to move us along pretty quickly. There was this big We Protect report on child sex abuse. Paul, I read the report and it was, you know, as with all these things, it makes you very squeamish. And there were some facts in there that I thought were kind of troubling. And at the same time, I thought it was just a little over rot. Well, you know, I I have a hard time criticizing them for being overwrought about child pornography mm -hmm. and child sexual trafficking. Well, okay, so let me let me be let me be no, I mean, pointed I, you, about I mean you, but you're right. They they overstate their case. Yeah. And I think the reason they overstate the case is the very real reality that right now we've got nothing. Yeah. We got nothing technologically that that does it. We, you know, Nick Mick runs, you know, photo hashes and they take down for every one piece of child pornography they take down. I have read that as many as a hundred go by, if not more. So this is at this point, the technology has super empowered, really malicious conduct. It, and, and yet we can't deal, we can't just fix the technology because it's the same technology that uh, allows, you know, uh, resistance to authoritarian regimes and you know, all sorts of things. So I, I can't fix the encrypted transmission technologies at all. You know, I, I kind of despair at this point, at, but rightly so, because you know, we, we're not going to break end-to-end -end encryption. It, it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And, we're, and we can't do uh, client-side scanning very readily. Apple's efforts crashed and burned. I, I wish I had a better answer that would get rid of the bad stuff and save the good stuff, but I don't. I wish this report made a better effort to distinguish between adolescent selfie dick pics and things like that uh, and real child pornography, real grooming by real adults of kids. And there's a lot of that, I'm sure, but you can't tell what's going on from the statistics that they try to shock you with here. And, you know, we have just have to recognize that a lot of the stuff that's floating around now was self-generated and maybe even voluntarily self-generated. Uh, and, and that's very different from what we think of when we hear about child sex abuse material. And, and, you know, the other point that we don't often talk about is that content is not the only way that you can catch sex abuse online. A lot of these social media companies use behavioral techniques. You know, if you're uh, you know, a pedophile, you're probably gonna be reaching out to lots of underage children. That can be suspicious along with other indicators. So a lot of it doesn't actually depend on content and looking at content. So, you know, I think it's not quite right for the government to make the case that, it, you know, if everything gets encrypted, they'll lose full visibility into this, into this activity. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. And there are lots of other technical fixes. Uh, WhatsApp, I think, has limited the size of groups so that you can't share, you know, to thousands at a set, at a single shot. Yeah. And so that that reduces the attractiveness of sharing it, sharing pornography or child pornography or child sexual abuse materials across the network. Obviously, better reporting requirements to make it easier for children who are abused to, to find ways to get help is critical as well. I, I just think this is one of those sad cases where the technology does create some bad opportunities, but it's, it's Canadian to try and sweep back the technological tide. All right. So, Dimitri, you, uh, you name-check 
Kevin Mandia earlier in the uh, episode, so I'm guessing I know where you'll come out. But the European Union and Germany have attributed the Ghostwriter campaign, which was an attack on uh, a German electoral officials as well as a bunch of other people, to Russia. And Mandian has said, now, we think it's Belarus. Uh, it could be maybe they got a little help, but we can't prove that. Uh, who's got the better of this argument? Well, I, I think any time you go up against Mandian's uh, attribution, you, you, you've got a high bar to, to cross in terms of proving them wrong. And this is based on a presentation that uh, Gabby Roncone and Ben Reed did at CyberWork on last week, which was fantastic. And they went through a lot of really detailed um, attribution discussion of why they arrived at the connection to Belarus, not just Belarus, but their military services. And I think it's very compelling. It is interesting. I think this might be the first and one of the, the first times that Germany has actually done attribution publicly. Right. And it would be interesting. <laughs> it's it's kind of sad if they did it wrong. Yeah, it would be interesting if they did it wrong. Although they are doubling down on it. They're claiming that their attribution to GRU, the Russian military intelligence service is correct, but they say that they don't discount the possibility that multiple actors may be involved. So maybe there's potential for the Russians and Belarus to be collaborating here, although the relations are pretty strained with them, in Russia and Belarus, so I would be kind of doubtful of that. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's kind of where I came out to, although I thought most of Mandiat's arguments were more diplomatic and political than uh, technical. At least the stuff I saw was saying, look at these targets. These are targets that Belarus cares about a lot more than Russia. And, you know, yeah, okay, that could be, but that's not Mandiant's core expertise. The, the, well, first of all, you always look at qui bono, who benefits when you're doing right. attribution. That's an important part of this. But they had uh, a lot of technical visibility as well. They weren't able to necessarily uh, publish it all, but I'm quite confident in their assessment here. All right. And the other thing I wanted to touch on, two things. First, Alan Pollard, uh, he has been a giant in cybersecurity for as long as I've been in the field. A, a really somebody who uh, had a good exit with a startup and uh, used all of his freedom to push on cybersecurity standards and education and training in a very creative, energetic, uh, thoughtful, and uh, collaborative way. And uh, we're really going to miss him. Absolutely. Terrific individual. Always wanted what's best for the industry and just a great heart. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing I just wanted to ask you about, because I think this is almost a public service announcement, uh, the this Zella fraud scam that we're starting to see is very clever. And it doesn't require any technical sophistication at all to scam people out of very substantial amounts of money from their bank account. And you really have to be on your game. You know, if, if you're a little distracted while this is happening to you, you're going to get hosed. Absolutely. First of all, it goes to show you that any authentication scheme that's not relying on a physical hardware token that you plug into your computer is easily bypassable with a variety of ways, but social engineering is one of the key ways that they're using it. And what's happening here in Z with the Zelle scheme is that even though the banks, uh, first of all, Zelle is a payment network that you can use, sort of like PayPal or Venmo, where if you want to send money to someone directly, you can just do it through a bank or credit union and literally hundreds of institutions now support it. And many of them have now started implementing two-factor authentication where they will text you code, one-time code that you have to put in. But what happens is that the scammers will get a hold of your phone number, they'll send you a text message claiming that there's been a suspicious transfer and will ask you to confirm whether that transfer is uh, fake or not. 
And regardless of what you actually say, they'll call you right away and they'll use the text message really as a pretense to establish the relationship that something is going on. And in the course of the conversation, yeah, for, for, we, we, can you answer these security questions? Uh, well, <laughs> to, right. To in start. the course of the conversation, they'll actually say, we need to reset your password because yeah, you've been hacked. We'll send you a one-time code. And what they'll actually do is trigger the one-time code generation on the banking side. You'll get the real code from the bank and then they'll ask you to read it to them. And then they'll take it and, and put it in and, and do the actual transfer. So a clever way to reverse in, uh, to social engineer codes out of people. There have been variants of this in, in many two-factor authentication yeah. implementations. So, you know, I, I think when you see the push from the government to implement two-factor across the government systems and contractors, you need to be really aware that if you're not doing a hardware token, a lot of these systems will be easily bypassable. And uh, we've talked in the past about a variety of ways that the criminals are doing that now. Yeah, the, I, the thing that, that struck me as, as the cleverness of this is they ask you to read back the number. Now, I've never had anybody ask me to read back the number, but all the time they send me a number and then they say, please type it in. Yes. And, you know, for most of us, the difference between typing it in and reading it back uh, is not very big. I actually know several banking services that do ask you to read it to them when they, uh. you confirm wire transfer. So that's not uncommon either. Yeah. So if somebody sends you one of these messages, do not reply uh, because it's probably a scam and, uh, you know, trying to play with them is going to get you burned. Yeah, I, I had the exact same experience. It wasn't Zelle. It was Chase and it was a fraud and it was a, a, somebody had just bought an Apple phone for $1,400. Ah. I didn't go follow it, but it's becoming common everywhere. Okay, let's turn to our uh, interview with two Randori officials, as I said earlier, Moose Walpoff and uh, Dan McDonald. Moose, also known as David, is the founder, co-founder and chief strategy officer for Randori. And Dan McDonald is the head of corporate security, sorry, corporate strategy. And quickly ask you to introduce how you ended up at Randori, what you did before that. Uh, Moose, you were mostly a hacker for hire and worked on uh, attack for a variety of uh, cybersecurity companies, right? Yeah, that's right. So I'm the chief technology officer and co-founder here at Randori. And I fell into this world by way of digital forensics and supporting offensive cyber. And then Kind of the adult part of my career I was running red teams, breaking into large U.S. corporations at, at their behest, I should be clear, working right. with them to help uplift security programs. And and very briefly, the the elevator pitch, the, the one floor elevator pitch for Randori is you took all that attack capability and essentially have been trying to automate it ever since. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's just automating all the stuff that you know is kind of in my brain or in the red teamer's brain and then trying to make that uh, resource available to a broader audience. Okay. And Dan, you've spent time at a, a bunch of places, State Street, and then before that, the Navy as a rear admiral and at NSA at the same time. Yeah, that's correct, Stuart. So yeah, I have a little bit of a unique background. I've been working cyber in the civilian world for about 15 years now. And traditional functional roles like a CISO or most recently as the chief resiliency officer. Uh, on the other side, on the military side, been a Navy reservist, just retired after 34 years. Last active duty recall was to the NSA back in 2018. So I think what I bring to the fight is that unique perspective from both sides and decided to jump back over to the product platform side of the house where I feel I can 
use both the civilian military experience to help lots of companies rather than just one. Okay. Well, th- this, that's great. And I should disclose, I have been on uh, Randori's advisory board for some time. So I do have some background and interest in this story, but we ought to get to the story. Dan, why don't I ask you, Randori found itself in the middle of a good-sized story that produced very different reactions among the cybersecurity community. So can you give just a quick recap of uh, what the story is and why it seemed to be so divisive in the community? Yes, sure. And, I, and I'll offer to have Moose chime in as well if, I, if he wants to add a few details. But basically, part of what Randori does as a platform is bring a realist red team experience to our customers. And part of that is using zero days. And we, we did discover a zero day and it took quite an amount of time to work through our process in terms of figuring out if it was usable and if you could use it around a specific customer, which we did. And then fast forward, we hit a point in the process where we need to decide at what point we should uh, disclose to the vendor, which we did. And uh, it wasn't wasn't such a fast forward. The controversy here was that you you had a a pretty serious bug, like 9.8 out of 10, and held it for about a year before disclosing. And a lot of people said, well, God, why would you wait a year? So a couple of things around that. First, although it was for a period of year, a year, the way that the timeline goes is we discovered the zero day, then you have to do additional research to make sure that it's valid, can be used, it's real for all basic intensive purposes before it starts to get used. So that takes sometimes takes a long time. And in this case, I would say the, the majority of the time. Moose, do you want to add in a few points around that and the timeline and, and why so long? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the net out is um, finding a bug in software is not that hard. You know, folks tend to think this is punctuated point where you find the bug and it gets assigned a score and you move on with your life. Business reality for those, I know a lot of listeners to this podcast in particular have, you know, heard professionals talk about exploitation and weaponization and all these buzz phrases we use, but the back half of operationalizing a capability often takes a really long time. Well, these days you have to kind of have to chain it with a bunch of stuff, right? Uh, And then figure out, okay, we've got a flaw, but how does it give us access to something we want? Yeah, exactly. There's the the flaws themselves, and then there's often operational considerations. So in this case, there's like two components that were um, disclosed to Palo Alto, um, of which they assigned a CV to one of them and they uh, didn't to the other. We think they refer to it as a capability, but there's kind of those two little nuggets. And then there's also the like, can you actually reach this in a deployed, you know, in situ circumstance? Um, you know, you, you remarked about severity and yeah, 9.8 is a big score on, you know, severity score, but we also know there's a lot of 9.8s and 10s that are never ultimately exploited in the wild. Um, and so there's more to it than just knowing that there's a potential memory corruption or other issue here. So as far as you know, this was not, and as far as Palo Alto knows, this was not exploited in the wild, except by you for your red team. Is that right? Yeah, I guess I would say that we weren't so much in the wild. Um, but yeah, we, we, to our knowledge, I think are the only folks to have exploited it. Of course, we've disclosed the vulnerability. We know that there's people who are now publicly researching it and trying to tear apart the patches and figure out 
you know, exactly what makes up this bug. So it wouldn't surprise me to start seeing people use it. Okay, but it, it, it will take some doing for people to figure out how to use it. So let me ask then what Palo Alto's reaction was when you went to them and said, we found this bug. Were they grateful? Did they get, offer you a bug bounty or uh, did they say, how, what took you so long? Well, we are, we're not in this for the bug bounty, so you know, we don't sell bugs, including to the vendor. You know, Once we hit that decision to disclose, we're just trying to work with a vendor to make sure things get fixed quickly. Palo Alto is very professional. They get it. You know, This is not their first rodeo and having somebody bring them my impact issue. So I would say that I have really nothing but positive things to say about them in terms of uh, engaging post-disclosure. Yeah, it's been a, a really good professional working relationship as we've been coordinating with them. And we continue to coordinate with them just because you know, we're trying to make sure that we you get information out as judiciously as we can while also being cognizant of the potential impacts. But yeah, they've been a great partner, actually. So I would agree with that as well. And it, it really was they were a company to, to work with. And it was about a partnership and being as transparent as possible with vendors. And uh, one other thing that kind of hit me over the weekend when I saw a, uh, uh, I think ABC was doing a special on on NSA and how General Nakasone talked about how we've got to do a whole lot better at that collaboration between companies and government and companies. So to that end, I feel this is almost you know just a great example of how two companies can work together towards a, a common cause to make sure that when the um, the vulnerability gets disclosed that it's done so in a as transparent a manner as possible and making sure that customers are notified at the right point in time. So overall, I, I think it was a pretty positive process, something so that let me we're just, looking to do more of. Let me, let me jump in and ask, I guess, Moose to explain why you need zero days. Why, why was this valuable for your customers, valuable for Randori, since not that many companies have announced they've found and used zero days in their pen testing approaches to the customers? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that question. So I guess I'll first remark that we're maybe the first to really publicly talk about it, you know, right. about using these capabilities in our offering, but we're certainly not the only people to use these types of capabilities in our offering. And I have no doubt that as this discussion continues, we'll find other organizations that have been using bugs for long periods of time without disclosing them. You can go to the set of kind of oh, supporters yeah, yeah, on Twitter. That's right. As long as you never disclose to anybody, you can keep using them forever, can't you? And you don't get in trouble either. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. So, uh, so I guess to some extent, if, if we had quietly disclosed this, maybe it wouldn't have been news. But I think this is an important conversation. So... When you get down to kind of brass tacks, organizations are on kind of a sophistication journey trying to defend themselves from adversaries. And it's, I think, intuitively obvious that if you want to practice fighting with an adversary, you need to be able to spar or engage with somebody that brings the same techniques and capabilities as the adversaries you actually go after. So the very name Randori practice how you, you know, this ethos is throughout our business. But if you think about it like, you know, you're going to go play in the Super Bowl, you need to scrimmage a whole bunch and you don't want to go just run, you know, you know, fake plays over and over and over again. You want to do some impact and some hitting and actually be able to, to prepare. Um, and so that's kind of the top level analogy for the less technical people. I think when you get into the technicality, the vast majority of the stuff we do is not using O'Day, right? Just like everybody else, we're using Publix, we're using phishing, we're using other capabilities. But at the end of the day, if you want to really test whether your defense in depth strategy is working, whether you have the visibility, whether you have the ability to detect and respond, 
you just are gonna need to have a capability that's you know equivalent to if not identical to the capabilities that your enemies have so the alternative would be asking somebody to let you in so that you could demonstrate your ability to move laterally and fool them but they kind of know you let them in don't they yeah, I, I, the fun story that I usually use to help people understand is that every time I've done a presumed compromise, so somebody takes the malware that I have and installs it on a computer, it's amazing. They always put it on the computer with all of the defenses properly configured and where there's no accidental <laughs> information that's been put there by a user and that doesn't have any extra access, right? And the tests always seem to look really good from that perspective. Uh, not to say that you can't be successful as a red teamer, but you know, there's a contrivance. And I think when you're trying to unstick internal dialogue, the more contrivances you have, the less, you know, less successful you can be. But ultimately, there are some devices that you can't simulate access, and this is one of them. In the case of a Palo Alto, you know, a system administrator cannot give permission that we can get with an exploit. So there's Oh my goodness. So you, you actually got better access using the zero day than you would have gotten if you had said to your customer, let us in and, and put us on this particular Palo Alto box. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So from a, a, a CISO perspective, I think this is absolutely where we, we need to be going. And as Moose alluded to, it's train before you fight. For any military listeners out there, they totally relate to this because we do all kinds of war gaming and in, included. And that is cyber war gaming, where no kidding, it's almost as close to full contact as you can get. So Randori, Randori's platform is, in my mind, kind of the next logical thing to help mature any cyber organization because it does give you that realistic experience. It's, it's not necessarily about the specific zero day or patching 10 things. It's the experience of getting compromised, or exploited and how your team works through that and fights through that with minimal impact to your company. That's what's going to make you uh, a better cybersecurity organization. So this is really, it sounds like, for people who are, for defenders who are at the top of their game and who want the toughest possible test of their ability to respond. And we've heard a lot about people saying, you have to assume the attacker is inside your network. And that sounds quite right. But assuming they're inside your network and having them show up there are two different things. And having your, having your defenses work when somebody is inside your network is hard. And, and this is one of the only realistic ways to test it, I guess. Well, I'd offer that you know, a number of organizations successfully repel us. And what they do in order to be successful isn't remarkably technically sophisticated, but it is dedicated and consistent. And it's, you know, building institutional resiliency is a lot about knowing what matters and then just doing the fundamentals really well, you know, consistently. And that takes practice, that takes training, takes, you know, institutional will. So it's a lot of stuff to get right, but I don't want folks to hear that, you know, the best organizations are highly technically sophisticated. I think they're just well-practiced. Okay. Now, fair enough. They do the boring stuff well. They have checklists. They follow them. I always used to say that at NSA, the the defenders were much better rule followers than the attackers. And it sounds like that's true in, in the private sector as well. So what happens when you go to a customer and you say, I got into your network. Here's where I, 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 here's where I got. 
Maybe it's halfway to where you would have preferred to go. And I use this zero day that nobody knows about. How many of them say, oh my God, we've got to get that zero day fixed. I don't want to have that happen again. Uh, you need to call the software producer and get him to fix it right away. Yeah, in, in my career, that's not been a, an un, unheard of response for sure. I think it's a very natural reaction for people to have that fear of like, oh crap, I'm going to hit this thing again. Most of the organizations that we're working with when we're talking about needing to or actually using zero day are pretty sophisticated. And so they recognize this one vulnerability is just representative of a class of vulnerabilities and there's going to be others that they have to defend against as well. And so the kind of value exchange conversation is really about how do we test the scenario now, you hit the thing. A lot of people say like, oh, I got a test that I've patched. Like, no, no, we're not talking about testing that you've patched here. We're talking about testing that you've done the segmentation, right? That you have a you know firewall in front of this device that does default deny. And then you've got some separation from your internal network and you've got some visibility so that when something goes wrong, you can actually see that. Um, and when you kind of uplift to that level, you can say, oh, if I can catch and repel this, I can catch and repel things that look like this. And then the ability to iterate on that you know, is still dependent in many cases on having the capability. So you know, if you make changes to your program, you train your people, you change your network configuration to get that better insight, you, you need the ability to try again. Yep. And so yeah, you want the capability to exist, but you, you know, you're ma managing risks, right? Yeah. So, and if I'm the CISO and I'm reporting to the board, I, it's great to be able to say, yeah, our pen tester used three zero days to get in and he still didn't get into what he wanted to get into. Uh, so that, that's, <laughs> that's the good news, I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a really good point. It really is. Sometimes it's what you, we don't come across. It kind of reinforces the fact that organizations are doing the basic block and tackling the right things to, to make their organization more secure. And in my mind, that actually is just as transferable up to the execs at a company or the board of a company saying, hey, this is what we've done. This is the type of training or red teaming we've been doing. And here are the results. And here's where we're performing really, really good because they came, tried to come up against these certain things within the, the network and they couldn't, they couldn't get in. So let me let me try to channel the critics here. I think the critics would most likely say because I think this is where they they come from. There is a vulnerability equities process in the government. Uh, the National Security Agency, when it finds a zero day, it doesn't ju doesn't just go hog wild with it. It has to ask, should we be using this or should we tell the software producer that there's a serious hole in their software? And there's a process and the attacker gets to make their arguments and then people who are representing the defenders make their arguments. And it's a, an elaborate process, but that's in service to national security intelligence collection. Uh, what's your equivalent? Did you go through a process like that? Yeah, no. So, it's Stuart, you and I both both spent some time at the agency, and, and I think we get it that the fact you summarized it correctly, its its mission set is very different than uh, the mission set of a, of a company in the business world, including Randori. But to answer your question, we do have a uh, a VEP process that we followed, and as part of this whole evolution, we're always looking for feedback from from social media from you know the people that think it was great to the folks that didn't that that's all part of the process and also part of this process is we're going to take a look at that 
process that we followed and formalize it a little bit better so that we can make it public. Because again, our mission isn't national security or defending the homeland. It's about bringing that true red teaming experience to our customers. So it's incumbent upon us and very important to our core values that we be as transparent as, as we possibly can. So that will be coming down and coming out in the near future. So let me ask Moose about some of the rules that I would have expected the, that process would turn up. Uh, if you saw this in the wild under the VEP process, if NSA sees one of its exploits in the wild, it's going to disclose. I, did you ever see a, a zero day you were using for this purpose in the No, that's not a, not a thing we encountered here. But to the question that's really there is, yeah, there's a bunch of circumstances where like if we encounter what I would call a real incident, right? If we get on a system and that system has been compromised by somebody not us and engaged in this op- this operation that we're doing, that's a real incident. We stop, we go hands off keyboard. And then I expect that any capabilities that we're using and anything that was used to exploit that system should be, you know, aired to the vendor and you know, run through a real incident, right? And those are things that we do look for as just normal course of action as indications of compromise or other, you know, malicious activity. So certainly if we have reason to believe that a vulnerability we're using is known outside of us, like I don't want it anymore. Let's get that thing fixed, right? If we ever thought that we'd been compromised or somebody had, you know, managed to exfiltrate like a vulnerability from us, maybe the same circumstance we'd, you know, facilitate, you know, getting those things fixed as judiciously as possible. And have you ever had a customer say, I just don't like that philosophy. I want this fixed faster. Or have you been able to persuade them that it's really in their interest to have you using zero days that haven't yet been been patched? Well, I think everybody knows what they're in for before we engage, right? So we try to be very clear about who we are, how we operate, the experience that we bring. So every customer that we ever see, see see a slide that says that, you know, here's the set of stuff we're going to do. And on that is a list of, you know, you know, periodic use of zero days and that always starts you know strikes a conversation up but you know people get it like i've got a lot of customers who are being hit by oday by not friendly people um yeah this isn't that rare anymore unfortunately and so right. it's the reality in which they live anyway okay so let me i uh, uh, just finish up by give, asking you how do you automate attack tools or, or the attack process. I mean, that's being a pen tester, especially in a, a pen test attacker is, I, I always thought of it as it's the, the personality is kind of linebacker personality. You're, you're jumping around back there, trying to throw the defense off the game. You're going to take advantage of whatever little advantage you can get and try to slip through a hole. And the, the defense is, they're, they're, they're linemen. They just don't want anything to happen. Uh, and so uh, if you're trying to automate that constant juking linebacker motion, how do you do that? Yeah, well, I think when you think about the red team experience when you're working with a partner, you often don't want constant high noise activity, right? You want a mm-hmm. consistent cadence of progress and incremental improvements. So you know, don't think that automation in this case necessarily equates to high volume, right? There's a balance right. that's there to be struck. But I also usually like to describe it not as trying to automate, but trying to scale, right? We're not okay. going out trying to replace human innovation, but we're trying to deliver those human innovations everywhere that they apply you know, in a scalable way so that we can bring a small number of experts to a large number of users very quickly and with low cost. Um, 
And then of course, so this is more tool. You, you, you have tools for moving laterally. You have tools for identifying possible vulnerable, possibly vulnerable bits of attack surface. And so it's more about having better tools for attackers. Well, I think it's about building tools that look a lot like the tools that real adversaries use uh, right. and that turning those around so that the customers can see them and interact with them. I mean, su surprise, you know, real attackers have figured out how to automate reconnaissance a long time ago. Um, right. We're just doing the same thing that has happened there and then, you know, making that a utility for defenders. Okay. So I, you could think of this as a way of showing pretty good defenders what their attackers see when they look at their network, when they try to get in, and then once they get in, what they see, because that'll tell you what they will most likely attack first. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's you know, I want folks to be able to understand how an adversary can look at them and then be able to see you know, when something goes wrong, what happens next, and then you know, does the system withstand or is there stuff to improve? And then okay. you know, consistently over time, it's how we get better. All right. Uh, uh, Dan, Moose, thank you very much. This was a really interesting take on the vulnerability equity process from a completely different point of view. Before we finish up, I do want to uh, tell our listeners that uh, if you do internal investigations, you probably already figured out that data protection law is a real constraint. And uh, if you're interested in figuring out uh, what the latest on that is and how people are learning to live within those constraints, Steptoe is doing a free webinar on December 2nd. Just go to the Steptoe.com website and you'll see a webinar announcement if you're interested. Thanks to David. Thanks, to Dan. Thanks to Dimitri and Paul. Oh, sorry, I said David. Uh, Moose. I, uh, thanks to Moose. I, I, and lastly, for our listeners, if you've got anything to suggest about our show, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com will get to us. You can leave us a rating and we'll read it. Uh, thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 384 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.